Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Today, we have the pleasure of having a conversation with Jonathan Carey. Jonathan is a senior managing director at Guggenheim Securities, where he leads the financial sponsor effort within the investment banking division. With 14 years at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, prior experience at Credit Suisse, and several other firms, Jonathan is a trusted advisor to financial sponsor clients. He has a bachelor's of business degree from the University of Technology in Sydney. He's also a member of the Australian Institute of Chartered Accountants. At Guggenheim Securities, Jonathan's expertise in equity, leveraged finance, M&A, structured finance, contributes to delivering comprehensive solutions to his clients. He's an incredibly thoughtful leader as well, taking care of his team, his clients, his family. He manages and balances a lot, even being very involved in being a generous donor here at Scholars of Finance. And so it was a privilege to have him on the podcast today. We dove into his story, his background, his thoughts on leadership, on mentorship, on coaching, on learning, on work-life balance, how we can achieve our best, how we can succeed and help others succeed. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as our team did. And without further ado, we present you Jonathan Carey. Jonathan Carey, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. First of all, how are you? And tell our listeners, where are you calling in from today? Thanks, Ross. Nice to be here. Calling in from my office Thursday afternoon in New York City. Nice. Is it sunny out there today? Fingers crossed. It's been like a bit all over the place this week. All my clients keep complaining about missing flights, kind of. <laughs> Beats AQIs of 400 plus. At least the fog is lifted from a few weeks ago. Yeah. Growing up in Australia, we didn't worry too much about that stuff because it was a pretty regular occurrence. But yeah, people up here got pretty upset with fires and smoke and visibility being compromised in New York City. But that's once a year event in Sydney. That's a perfect segue. Jonathan, we have so much ground to cover and so little time. Why don't you kick us off by just telling us your story? I love to have our guests just share their story from their perspective, the highlight reel of their life to begin the conversation. Yeah, sure. Thanks for the question. I started working after undergraduate, basically, in I think it was, I want to say 1988, which sounds like a long time ago. But that's when it was, which happened to be like the bicentenary, I think, in Australia, if you can believe it. Anyway, 200 years since the founding of the country. I was obviously in Sydney at the time. And fortunately, when I was in my undergraduate studies in Sydney, I had a chance to study in the United States for a year. And so I came here on a program. My parents were against it, didn't want me to leave the country, but I was like, look, it's free. At least it was for me. You can't really stop me, so I'm going to go. But that turned out to be a great development for me because I moved from Sydney, relatively small sort of environment, obviously much bigger now in 2023, but back in 1988, it wasn't, to the United States to go to college for a year. And it was just a real eye-opener to me on the scale of what was available to you. Drove around the country, got to learn 
the 50 states, although I didn't hit all 50 states, but the northeast is very different from the southwest and et cetera, et cetera. So I always described it as five countries in one, quite frankly. Some people understood my accent. A lot of people didn't, but it was curious journey along the way to buy gasoline in Alabama. But anyway, so I progressed through that. I came back to Australia, finished my degree, began working for an accounting firm, always wanted to work for an investment bank, really, as I discovered in my time in the United States, it was an interesting area. So I basically joined one in Australia. And at that time, investment banking was a very kind of small industry. But at that time, Australia was going through this, what was called this privatization sort of wave where they would basically take public government-owned enterprises. The government would own the telecom network, that owned the national airline, Qantas, that owned the biggest bank, Commonwealth Bank, that owned the biggest insurance company, GIO. And I basically worked on selling all of those to public shareholders through an equity offering, which was pretty fascinating stuff as a young 22-year-old, you know, getting in front of the Prime Minister of Australia and explaining what was going on. But when you do a transaction like that, of that sort of scale in Australia, obviously senior people from your organization come down from overseas because it's a, a global offering with often a listing on the New York Stock Exchange. So they did, got exposure to them. They're like, you're a smart guy, you should come work in New York. And I was with that mindset anyway, given my experience in college here for a year. So I did that, didn't know anyone, asked a cab driver where to live on the way in from JFK, Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn, sounded all good. That was kind of like my conversation. I had a job when I arrived, which was good. And that was really the start of it. And that was in 1995. And I've really been doing what I've been doing now, which is covering private equity firms and helping lead an investment bank here in New York since 1998. I'm now recruiting people into this organization who weren't born then. It's, I'm just dating myself. But it's been like a, it's been a great experience for me. It's probably tougher now than it was then. It's probably a little bit more opportunity, a little bit more forgiveness back then, quite frankly, maybe a little less competitive. But it's been a great career and I've learned a tremendous amount along the way. We'll have to dive into how you think about recruiting those people who weren't born when you started leading the investment banking yeah. efforts over there. Walk me through the story of Guggenheim. So when you joined Guggenheim Securities, how large was the firm? What was the coverage like? And how long you've been there now, obviously, and total, run the math for us. And what's the firm look like today after you've been there as long as you have? So it's pretty interesting to me. So basically what happened is the world had this global financial crisis, which in 2008, which is probably worse in the United States than many other countries around the world. Certainly it wasn't that bad in Australia, quite frankly, but it was pretty bad here in the United States. And that created within the banking industry around the mortgage crisis, a real calamity where you had Bear Stones disappeared, Lehman Brothers disappeared, Merrill Lynch disappeared. In their day, formidable institutions who were just gone, basically on a weekend. And they got absorbed by bigger banks. Traditional investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley became banks as a way to get support from the Federal Reserve. So everyone became a bank, like a real bank, not just a boutique advisory firm focused on the M&A product or IPO equity underwritings. And there was always like a fight between the investment banking model and the commercial banking model. And this was at the end of it, like the result of it. And the commercial banks won and they acquired all these investment banks. And if you were an investment bank, you became a bank, which meant more regulation. 
What happened then is what I observed is a lot of talent, which had been at the investment banking firms, which were now in many respects gone and certainly had changed, realized that they didn't want to do the sort of work that those firms were now doing or felt that the entrepreneurship that they had and enjoyed as they did all their careers gone. And honestly, I had this experience that a lot of these bigger firms mainly was because of scale, but it was certainly due to talent drain had been dumbed down. And, you know, when I used to approach a situation for a private equity firm, I'd always think, okay, like, how can I add value to this private equity client? I'd think about things like, what can you do with the company? How can we help with the diligence program? What's our perspectives on value? Other acquisitions they could do along the way. How could you, how could they create value, and what ideas could I do into that? And what it became, and I can illustrate the point most clearly, is how much money can we lend to this private equity firm to do this buyout? And that was the focus of the conversation. And when I heard that, I was like, "Geez, it really has been dumbed down." If that is the only question that we're going to ask ourselves. And obviously, other people saw the same thing, which is why these boutique M&A firms emerged post this global financial crisis. I mentioned about people leaving these organizations. It was a different environment to the one they grew up in. And they said, screw it. We'll just do it ourselves. And firms like Evercore and Guggenheim Securities and Molus and Centerview emerged. And they were really collections of what were very good individuals who decided to build up the old sort of partnership model investment banking advisory business that they started their careers in. And that group of banks is now over 50% of the M&A wallet in the United States. The M&A wallet being the sort of most sophisticated sort of fee wallet that companies and private equity firms support from yeah. zero, basically, or maybe it was slightly below zero, but from zero. This trend evolved in 2015 when I joined Guggenheim Securities, which is probably like 40% of the size it is right now, or a thousand employees now, or probably 400 right then. And we have we had some great sort of bigger clients, Disney, Verizon, Pfizer, and I was brought on to build up a private equity business, which is now our biggest business as a firm. So I've started from zero, now our biggest business, and we bring a real advisory as opposed to here's some debt solution to these private equity firms. And you know what? It's differentiated. That's how I got into Guggenheim. As a senior managing director, you help oversee the entire investment bank that is Guggenheim Securities. Is that accurate? Yeah, obviously we have a CEO. There's a group of people who are leaders in the organization responsible for individual product and industry groups. Also, to be honest with you, very simply, Ross, making other people successful. So if I can make another person succeed, I'm going to make another person succeed. And that's my job. And when I started, I was just doing what I was told. Not here, but in 1988, doing what I was told. Jonathan, do this, blah, blah, blah. And in many respects, that very defined remit existed in one shape or form all the way through like global financial crisis of 2008. Then I began to break out of that as a person in terms of being more of a leader and taking control and not necessarily waiting for permission to do something. But if I thought it was a good idea, you know what? I've had 30 years experience. It's probably a good idea. So I just 
took the initiative to pick up the phone myself and basically Ross transitioned from working for someone else to being a leader, if you like. And quite frankly, the move to Guggenheim Securities, which is very much more a startup organization, obviously now of scale, was an affirmation of that transition and has been a catalyst to self-confidence and leadership and contentment and enjoyment and success. So you need to transition from just being in the back of the train car, which is still moving and fine for many people, to the one where I drive the locomotive and try and make a difference. And that's what this job's about. I really appreciate you sharing that. And there's so much to unpack. You had shared that ultimately your job, your goal is to help other people succeed, help other people be successful. And that cuts in a lot of directions in your role, right? You've got peers, you've got leaders at the firm, you've got your employees and the people who report up to you within the firm. You've got your clients, you've got your family, your daughters, your wife. Walk me through that. What does it mean in your job as an SMD of an investment bank? What does it look like to help everyone be successful? A and B, you know, how do you balance and prioritize? I always have my son, Ted, in Sydney or Canberra, I should say, but that's the other part of the mix there. But what I would say is, in some respects, and I think everyone identifies with this in some way, shape, or form, there's always a doubt in your mind when you're talking to a client, am I saying something that's helpful to them? There's always that doubt. And I'm not going to say like I'm right 100% of the time because that's never the case, but I would definitely have a very reasoned rationale for my point of view. And I'm not shy about sharing it. And this could be with like the head of private equity at Blackstone, KKR, or it could be with my own chairman or CEO, or it could be CEO of a portfolio company of scale at one of these large private equity firms. I'm always happy to share an opinion. What I'm trying to do is put people in a situation where they could have the same sort of affirmation about their skills, their industry, their judgment, their product that I have. And if they do that, then they can operate independently of me and they can carve out a career for themselves and they will be imminently satisfied with those outcomes. It's very easy to say this won't work for these reasons, but that's not really going to get you hired. So there'll always be a reason why something won't work, but what are you going to do to make it work? And when you become like an advocate of trying to push it forward and lead an organization, you will be successful. And so what I'm trying to do is, you know what? You should go ahead and call them. I think what you said is a good idea. Let me know what they say. Or you want help with this client? Just got the phone with someone on a picture situations. You know what we should do? We should call a couple of people and see whether what we think might work will work before we get pregnant on a situation and make a mistake. And that will make you, who has a relationship with this person, successful. Nothing to do with me. Just wanted to bounce the idea off me in terms of a way to be successful. People are very good at certain things. I've had the benefit of growing up in a different country, working as a journalist in investment banking, working as an accountant, working in M&A, working in equities, doing debt transactions. I have been doing that for basically since 1988. 
three decades. And you pick up a lot of wisdom along the way. And sometimes people just need to be pushed a little bit to realize that they have that same wisdom within them. And sometimes for an analyst, it's a little different. You can do the model. This is what we're trying to solve. You just think about it, talk to your friends around you. You know, that empowerment is helping them be successful in their particular vocation. And Right up to like senior executives of this firm, like making them feel successful and giving them the tools in some respects to do that. That's a lot of what I do every day. What are some of the tools and skills that you've learned for helping somebody who's struggling? Maybe their ego is flaring up. Maybe they're defensive. Like you want to help them be successful based on your experience. We have a reasonable hypothesis of what they can do to be successful. You're trying to bring that forth to them. And they're just not receptive to it. What do you do in those situations? My approach as a leader with anybody to build and cultivate influence is first lead by example, let the results and impact of my life and work speak for themselves and develop credibility. Second, build trust, invest in a relationship, be empathetic, show the other person I care about them, build that rapport and that relationship so trust can emerge. I think third, be selfless, right? Like really be about the mission, be about the team, do what I'm doing and say what I'm saying for something greater than myself. I'd say lastly is be authentic, be real, be genuine. So I'm just curious from your perspective, what's been most helpful for in those moments where for some reason someone is struggling to be successful and actually hear advice or recommendations on how to be successful, how do you get through to them and help them be successful? The first thing is when someone's, let's use these words, like upset, there's often a reason unrelated to what they're upset about. And what I try to do is, I'm a pretty safe space, Ross, to be honest with you. I'm not going to like judge. I'm not going to think differently of the person. And I've just demonstrated that over like decades of my career. And I'll give you one particular example. I encourage people to talk to me when I can see that they're frustrated about something. And I don't try to win the advisory debate there. Just I plant something that might be another way to think about it. But you can think about it you want. But maybe you want to think about it like this. You don't necessarily conclude the conversation in its entirety. So let's catch up like later on. can be a week. could be a day. And often they go away, they either tell you about this other issue that's really annoying them or they resolve it on their own without feeling the pressure and urgency of some sort of resolution. They find their own sort of resolution of it in, a, in what's considered like a safe environment. The other thing I would say is the very basic thing I've learned, and it's like a huge like success factor for me is treat everyone well. I'm a senior person at this firm. I am very happy to have a long conversation with a junior analyst at Blackstone on something. And I know, because I get told, that the reason we hired you actually is because we were talking to Kelly and she was saying like how helpful you've been. Because they're all in their water cooler or cubicle or elevator and they talk about what's going on. And she's like to her senior partner when he asks or she asks, like, how are you going? She's I'm doing okay. This thing is really hard. But you know what? This guy, Jonathan, reached out to me and it was like really helpful. It's not like the front page of the Wall Street Journal. 
But, you know, what goes around comes around and you treat everyone, you know, with the fullness of your attention whenever you can. And I'm not even going to say particularly for the client. There could be individuals here. We recruit like 80 analysts a year, 60 of them, maybe not 60, 50 of them go on to some other job after two years or certainly after four years. 90% of them are clients of the firm in some way, shape, or form. Like that is doing an advocate in Disney or TPG or Vista or Tomo Brown. They're an advocate in that environment for you, given the respect with which you develop their relationship. I also try to teach them, be accountable, be responsive. If I ask a question, I'm not going to forget about it. But if you come back to me and say, you know what, I thought about your question. I I thought about it this way. That's a very good thing, as opposed to me having to say, hey, did you do that work I asked about? You're responsive. You're accountable. Be intellectually curious when you get asked a question. Okay, what are you trying to solve for? Not just like, I mean, I'm a bit nervous, I need to get out of your office, but you know, what are you trying to solve for? Because then I can maybe, the way you told me doesn't prevent, provide the right answer, so maybe I have to think about it a different way and I'll be intellectually curious such that I can come up with the answer as opposed to you coming up with the answer and telling me what to do. And you got to take some risks, which is not follow your dream stuff. I'm not saying that, but just taking my own example, leaving Australia for a year when I was 19, but then permanently when I was 26, getting married, Ross, should be good. <laughs> I don't really know. It's going to take a lot of work, but somewhat of a risk. Life partner. For me, getting out of what I was doing investment banking, getting this private equity thing in 1997, what the hell is that? It seems like it'll be a good business, but I'm not really sure. Joining Guggenheim, a totally different enterprise in 2015. These are all like risks with the return was mapped out and okay. And what's the downside if you go to college for a year when you're 19 in America? Not that bad. There was probably some downside in in joining like Guggenheim, startup enterprise as opposed to coming from a big sort of investment bank, but it's worked out fantastically well. So, you know, you're going to get a chance to take some risks. You need to reinvent yourself along the way just to like, stay refreshed, which is meant not to say leave the industry and become a chef or airline pilot. It's just look for ways to continue to learn. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm curious, like in your learning journey, how you continue to learn. Because when I look at people 10, 20, 30, 40 years into their career, different stages, you see a lot of people plateau at 30, 35, 40, somewhere. There's only so many spots at the top, right? There's only so many senior managing director roles at top investment banks. So it's a very select few people who rise to those levels of leadership. My understanding currently is that what really sets people apart is how much they learn, how quickly they learn, how consistently they learn. And if you were to try to isolate a couple characteristics of people who become the senior managing director, the CEO on the board, on management committee... Angela Duckworth that you penned would say it's grit, right? It's passion and perseverance. Carol Dweck would say it's a growth mindset, right? Always believing that we can continue growing. A lot of mentors that I've spoken to, yourself included, who have coached me as a leader have said it has a lot to do with learning. Those who rise to make the most impact and to the heights of leadership are those who continuously and constantly learn. When you look at your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, what are the things you've been learning about? How do you drive your learning forward? And how do you keep that humility and that awareness of the opportunity to learn alive? 
even as you succeed in the ways that you have? So it's a good question. Look, I was always ambitious. I always had that fire in the oven to be successful, which sounds silly, but you know, it really was a manifestation of trying to get my parents' attention as a you know, one of four children, basically. That was my path. And at the same time, I never really thought of myself, sounds weird, Ross, as like the smart guy in the room. I know I am a smart guy, but I never really thought of myself as a smart guy. And so the combination of like ambition, trying to get my parents' attention and not thinking you're not the smart guy in the room meant that you really had to like prepare. I really had, I thought I really had to prepare. And I, that's what I did. I would really prepare. And I would like research something. I would like anticipate questions in advance of getting them. I would ask questions, which is not a sign of vulnerability. It's a sign of, to my earlier point, intellectual curiosity. And I always felt you don't know what you don't know. When you begin to hear something that's, you don't really know what to do, that's just a forum for a question. And it's enjoyable to learn about a new industry or a new product and work your way through an experience. And even failure is just an opportunity to learn. People say that sort of thing a lot. But for me, it, in part, it was like I need to overcome some sort of insecurities, basically, which honestly, I think like we all have. We may not admit it, but I guarantee you there are people who you would think are the greatest leaders in the world, and I guarantee you they have some insecurity about something. So on a call with a client yesterday, a very senior partner in a private equity firm who's bidding on a company we're selling, and I started to ask him questions about his bid that he hadn't thought through. And he's like, that's actually a really good question. You know, what would you advise I do? I was like, this is what I think you should do, and this is why. And he's like, no one's ever said that to me before. So, you know, and he's like, I agree with you. That makes perfect sense the way you explained it. So, you know, you should never plateau. Whether you read a novel or listen to a podcast or ask a question or put yourself in a different environment or take a leadership role on a transaction, those are all, like, avenues to learn and if there's one thing like I tell my kids to do, seek out experiences, don't be intimidated about driving or diving or travel or school or exams. These are all opportunities to learn. These experiences become the tapestry with which we engage socially with people. It's easy to forget to ask questions. And oftentimes I'll encounter people who they won't ask questions because they don't want to look stupid. They want to look like they know what they're doing. They want to put their best foot forward. They want to look like they have the answers and they know what they're doing. For you as a leader, how do you strike the balance between asking the questions and ensuring your team has confidence in you? How do you avoid that perceived risk? For any of our listeners who might think, oh, I don't want to ask a dumb question. Look, you can make yourself vulnerable a little bit by saying, look, you clearly understand what you're talking about and I'm two days on the job. I just have this one, I have this one question to ask. Who's going to react badly to that? Everyone's vulnerable. Hey, I just need some help. I just need some help. Who's not going to respond well to that? That's better than I just don't understand. That that kind of like glass half full, like I just don't get it. I need some help. I don't get it. It's just a better way to engage, I think, around those sort of topics. And the environment that certainly we have here, peers are meant to help peers. 
you have peers ask questions of your peers. Like that's a particularly safe space. We encourage it. We're not paid here on our individual successes. We're paid if the firm does well, which is not to say that it's like it's a commune or something because we're in investment banking working in New York City on Madison Avenue. It's like as aggressive as it gets. But that sort of collective mentality of you'll get paid well if the firm does well, I think creates greater cooperation as opposed to competition amongst your colleagues, which is a better environment to ask questions. It makes a lot of sense. I want to shift the conversation a little bit into deal making and winning deals. You've been very successful in investment banking, leading a number of incredible transactions throughout your career. Can you unpack for us a little bit and maybe speak in a way that our students listening, our young professionals listening, and the senior executives listening could all learn from? What are some of the best pieces of advice you offer people for securing deals, winning deals, closing deals? I think you got to be prepared. So this whole, I'm going to shoot from the hip thing. I'm not really sure long-term that's like successful. You might be lucky every now and then, but you know, I think you got to be prepared when you engage with someone, whatever the topic happens to be. I think you need a diversity of experience. You get a call at 8.30 on a Sunday night from a client really asking for help because otherwise, why would they really call you at 8.30 on a Sunday night? You need to be able to answer that question. Not just, you know what, let me chat with some colleagues and I'll get back to you Wednesday. That's not really wise calling. Have a diversity of experience such that you can offer judgment points of view about his particular circumstance. Everyone says this, you got to listen. You have to listen. Everyone wants to talk. You know, grab the mic, listen to what the question is. There's a lot in the question that they're worried about. I'm worried about my employees. I'm worried about my competitors, we'll say. I'm worried about this information leaking. Listen to the question and try and answer it in a way that really does answer the question. Offer a point of view. The all be responsive. If a client calls you, call them back. It's pretty basic stuff. Answer the question. Don't punt it. Answer it. So anticipate the questions such that you can lead them to the answer in advance of feeling some pressure to answer something or react to something. Treat people well, be honest, have high integrity, communicate with people in a way that they want to chat to you. Like it can't be all about the deal. How was your daughter's first year of college? How was that moving on the weekend? I know you want to go to the Taylor Swift concert. Did you get the tickets? Sounds like that's really hard. How was that experience? Engage with something that's not consequential for them, but they'll probably like talking about it. Such that, you know, when you call, they want to take your call. Because the basic thing in life for us is people only want to give you business if they like you. I appreciate that. Do you have boundaries you set on who you want to be liked by? You know, there are people who are completely opportunistic. There is no no sort of moral or ethical bounds. If the potential client, you know, just it wants to engage in locker talk or, you know, lewd, crude humor, even as dishonest, there are people out there who will just play along to win the business. Are there bright lines you draw with who you will and won't do business with? I mean, I'm pretty, pretty tolerant of people's personalities. I'm pretty quick to realize they have agendas, which, you know, or opinions which I don't agree with. And 
I won't like jeopardize some sort of outcome because of that, but I don't need to double down that relationship. And inevitably, what I find is you can kind of, like I was saying, from shoot from the hip earlier on, you can get away with it a couple of times, but inevitably, it captures up to you. What goes around does come around. People who swear, say bad things about people when you know it's not asked for, get overly aggressive, lose their temper. It tends to be they tend to find themselves like certainly out of my vernacular, but out of the industry, and you forget about it. That tends to take care of itself. Inevitably, it catches up to them. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. I know we're coming up on time. Can I hit you with some rapid fire questions? First thing that comes to your mind. Sounds dangerous. Supposed to be. We like to live life on the edge here. Work-life balance. One or two key tips for balancing it all. It all works out. I wouldn't stress about it too much. You'll get time off. You'll work hard. It's hard to predict when it happens, but you'll have an adequate work-life balance. People aren't supposed to work 100 hours a week. Not supposed to work 20 hours a week. Over time, it'll work out. One or two books that have changed your life. It sounds weird. I read The Fountainhead. I liked that when I was younger. That was a great read. Always liked Pride and Prejudice. You know, great romantic kind of story. I'm a big sort of history buff. So I, I kind of like reading, you know, why did World War II start? Like, how did it all evolve? And really, what technologies came out of military conflict, because there are a lot quite frankly. And it's interesting to see how they were manicured inside the Navy or the Air Force or the Army, and then they became like regular way, like the cell phone, for instance. The um, Army got them first, but everyone's got them now. Yeah, this is true. Last question, Jonathan, you've been so generous with your time, with a lot of people, with your family, with friends, with your team, and with me and with Scholars of Finance. You're a momentum investor, a major donor of ours here at Scholars of Finance now for several years. You've spoken to our students. You've mentored many of our students. You've gotten on calls with me. You and Betsy have brought me to dinner, helped me think through how to be a good husband, how to prep for a marriage. In addition to all of the coaching and mentorship you've given me on how to be a good leader and CEO myself, just wanted to ask, what about scholars of finance has compelled you to give so much of your time and treasure? And why would you encourage others to get involved? I'm a parent of teenagers, young 20-year-olds. It's a really uncertain time for them. And you can come out of those experiences like one or two ways, you know, a good way and a bad way. And uh, there are certain very simple relationships, dialogues that you can have along the way, which I think reflect the great things about human nature, socialization, connection, friendship, humility, humor. And we should embrace all those things as we grow up. And I think Scholars of Finance has a lot of those qualities about the candidates who are part of your organization, your individual philosophies, you as an individual. And the more we can put that out into the world by influencing behavior when someone's 18 or 22, all the better. Amazing. Thank you, Jonathan. We should have you be the spokesperson. Well, thank you again. Thanks for the time today. Really enjoyed the conversation and would love to have you on again in the future. Anytime. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, 
please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.